Joe, you are a man of mystery. I know, I do. I'm literally a man of mystery. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've got to figure out the Jupiter Broadcasting contingency plan, and we only have about um, 26 years to do it because uh, I've installed Giro, and it's analyzed my health data on the watch. It's analyzed the health data on the phone, which includes my weight, my sleep, my movement. And um, according to this app, which I know must be right because it uses artificial intelligence, binaural networking, and machine learning all at the same time, it tells me that I have 69.6 total years to live. 69 years left. After the machine-learned artificial intelligence binaural network analyzed my health data for the last few years, it's told me that I'm only going to make it to 69 years, so we got to figure out plan B for Jupiter Broadcasting. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to make it. Can I be honest with you? Hmm. Do you, do you really want to live past 69? <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, seri- I'm, I'm, I'm being serious. I mean, you know, so every, you know, my dad is, is, is big into this, right? He's like, if you eat this way and you avoid meat and you avoid animal products and you drink only water and you eat kale, then you're going to live to 99 years old. And my question back is, why would I want to, he's like, you could get another 17 years of life. And I'm like, why would I want another 17 years of miserable, meatless, steakless, hamburgerless, cheeseless life? The only thing is, is I got to make sure I spend at least 30 years of my life not connected to a computer. As long as I can balance things out, I'll call it good. But surely within 30 years, we'll be able to upload our consciousness and uh, live forever. I'm hoping so. Could you imagine, like, even if it was just a version of me that could do emails and tweets, right? And just uh, have the AI in the, in the machine sit back and take care of all that stuff? I'd be all about that, too. Your ears are not deceiving you. The user error program is back. And for the first time ever... One, Mr. Joe Resington joins us on the program. Hello, Joe. Hello. It's very strange to be on this show for a change. Yeah, it's it's good to be doing this on our normal window where we would be, we typically would be recording LAN right now, Linux Action News, you and I. But uh, it's April Fool's, and that's a bad day for news. So we thought instead we'd do the user program in its place, and we recorded Linux Action News yesterday little behind-the-scenes secret sauce. That's how we, this is usually Joe's just too busy to even get on the show. But we made it work this week and avoided April Fool's at the same time. So I say good on us. And you know what really made it click for me, Joe, that I wanted to get you on the show? Is you were telling me about this totally foreign system that you guys have over there. And I don't know how big it is. You'll have to tell me because it, be, it might not be very large spread. But uh, there is this system for taking care of cats that I've never heard of before. And it, it piqued my interest because, as you know, I just recently adopted a rescue dog back in December. And totally different experience than apparently what you guys do with rescue cats. What is this even called? Is it like a foster cat program that you guys have over there? Yeah, exactly. It's just called fostering. Okay. And so there's various charities around the UK that do this. And the one that we are effectively volunteering for, um, they end up with a bunch of cats that people, either their circumstances have changed, they've moved somewhere where they can't take their cat with them, or uh, there was one where an old lady had had to go into a home because she got dementia, that sort of thing. So they end up with loads of unwanted cats. And so they neuter them and vaccinate them and then let them live or give them to people like me and my wife who look after them for a period and stick them on the website uh, with the details of them and some photos, and then eventually they get adopted by, uh, well, to what they call their forever home. 
Forever home. So that's like the uh, period in time where you, I mean, this is what happened to me, is I would I would fall in love with the animal. I would become bonded to the animal. And then the forever home parent would show up and want to take the animal. And uh, and that seems in, like unjust in itself that you just have to go through that. But it doesn't end there. Like you also have to play facilitator and middleman to like move the funds around and all of that stuff, right? Yeah, because there's an adoption fee. So that the person who comes and takes the cat forever, they have to pay, I think it is 80 or 90 pounds donation, minimum donation to the charity. Um, and yeah, I have to process that money. That the We've had two. Basically, we're onto our second cat at the moment. The first one was only with us for a week, and then he went to his forever home. And so she paid us in cash, and then I had to do the transfer um, you know, online transfer. <laughs> so I ended up with, I mean, it's not a problem. I just, you know, spend that going out or whatever. Um, but yeah, so you, you, that's why I say we're kind of volunteering. Not only are we looking after the cats, but we're also doing a bit of the admin. You have to fill in the adoption form and all that kind of stuff as well. <laughs> that just doesn't make any sense to me. It's just totally foreign to me, that part of it. And okay, so the other part I don't get about it is this system, and this just might be me being a dummy, but this system seems like it would work pretty well with dogs. Because you get a well-balanced dog and, and they, you know, they're just happy to be around people. They're happy to have a roof over their head. They don't care. But a cat can take a while to adjust, especially if there's been other cats in the house and there's parts of the house that smell like cat. So do the cats even really settle in by the time the forever parent comes and takes them? It's, or do you just get them between, during the really awkward, difficult stage? Yeah, pretty much that, really. This charity also does dogs and rabbits and stuff as well. But um, Rabbits. <laughs> So you got to really like cats then. Yeah, yeah, I do really like cats. Um, and yeah, it's, you talk about the bond thing there. And the first one we only had for a week, so we kind of didn't really bond that much. But sure. the, the second one we've had now for over a month, and he's kind of my buddy now. He's a bit of a strange cat because he hasn't fully settled in yet. But yeah, it's going to be sad to see him go. But that's kind of part of the deal. And, you know, part of the the reason that we wanted to do this was that we had a cat for eight years who got cancer and died. Um, and I just couldn't face that, that, um, that whole devastating period. I mean, it was like nearly... Uh, like nearly six months really from when he first got sick to when we had to put him to sleep and it was just devastating me man and so I, I just basically said to my wife like I can't do this again I can't put myself right. through it and so the beauty of the foster cats is that you get to hang out with them but then you know that they go off to a nice house I mean the, the first one we got it was uh, a lady came to pick him up and she must have been about 50 clearly was rich had a massive house in the countryside with a huge garden and you know that that cat is going to be really happy living there and she oh she had no kids as well she was one of those um just her and her husband or whatever so you know that she's going to give him loads of attention and you know so i'm hoping that this latest one happy who uh was mentioned on lan a couple of weeks ago when he jumped on the recording equipment um i'm really hoping that he ends up in a, a really nice place because he's a big cat and he kind of wants to run around and stuff and our flat's tiny, basically, so um, it'd be good for him to get a, a nice home. But here's the thing. While we're looking after him, we don't have to pay for anything, literally nothing. They give us food, cat litter. Oh, okay. They pay for all the vet fees. So it's basically having a cat without any financial responsibility. Okay. You know, now you're starting to speak my language there. So you're like speed dating, only you don't get to like – 
you don't get to go any further with the cat, but you get to try a variety of cats and get different experiences because that aspect of it is appealing. We we've had people tell us after the fact, like, you really lucked out with Levi because we've now heard a couple of horror stories from people who adopted a rescue dog and the dog was really unbalanced. They had aggressive issues and things like that. You don't know. You don't, and you just kind of take a you just kind of roll the dice when you go pick them up and you get to meet them a little bit, but it's not necessarily like a bad system. The part that seems odd to me, though, is that you end up having to do the money uh, sh- uh, chauffeuring, essentially. Like, you got to move the money around and play go- middleman. <laughs> that just seems, I don't know. It seems like something that just would never fly over here in the U.S. Like, it seems, it seems like very non-American to me. Do you think I'm wrong, Noah? But doesn't that feel like, that's like the American attitude would be like, that's somebody else's job. Yeah, you know, I so all of our dogs uh, came from the shelter. I've I've never purchased a, a quote unquote new dog, I guess. Uh, but here, the way, that, and I mean, you guys have a whole other system in Washington where you guys have to fill out paperwork, and you needed a reference to. Oh yeah, and they they won't even they wouldn't even let us adopt the dog, which I understand why. But they won't even let you adopt the dog unless it meets everyone in the family first, including the kids, a fiance, anything like that. Like they've got to, every everybody's got to be checked off and signed for. So here in, in North Dakota, we don't do any of that. But what they do do at the Humane Society, which I'm not a big fan of, is they have a mandatory minimum donation. So the dog okay. is free, but they have a mandatory minimum donation. And it's like two, three hundred bucks. And then on top of that, you have to leave with a collar and a leash. Well, guess what? I own I've owned many dogs. I have two. And both of them came from the Humane Society. We have more than enough collars and leashes. But when you're at the when you're at the Humane Society, we just went there for the kids to look at dogs. We didn't expect to come home with one. And then one just, you know, really fell into all oh, that. He would make a great family member. And so, yeah, we'll just take him home. But I ended up having to spend another like $70 on this stupid, ridiculously overpriced leash and collar. And I have to believe, you know, for us, it's, you know, the money wasn't such a big issue, but I have to believe that there are going to be people out there that would love to give a dog a home, but don't have the almost $400 it cost us to walk out of there with him. And I it just feel like there's probably a better way to do that. Yeah, but you have to think about it this way. They're basically a charity and that they need yeah. funds to keep going and it, they yes. need staff and all the rest of it. So Sure. And if and so if they said, like, it's $400 to adopt a dog, I'd be fine with that. And if they said the dog is free and so just if you want to leave a donation, that would be fine. In fact, to be honest with you, if they didn't have a mandatory minimum donation of $200, I assure you the check I would have written would have been a lot larger. But, uh, you know, when when they, t- when they don't, when there's no option, when there's no field for, I want to give this much. It's just, here's your bill. Then I pay the bill. Yeah. I mean, they would invite you to pay more. I'm sure <laughs> you are welcome. <laughs> I didn't ask. But. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that is an interesting contrast, all the little different things. And you know, uh, we'll move on from pets here in a moment, but, uh, the other funny thing that it's only really now we're fully realizing is, uh, it makes a really big difference to Levi that he came from Texas, our dog. Uh, he really has zero tolerance for the rain and does not like it cold and does not like the ground to be wet and muddy. And uh, guess what it is all the time in Washington? I was going to say, good thing none of those are issues where you live. Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, I mean, to his credit, he seems to uh, have Superman's bladder. I don't even know how he holds he, – he can hold his pee for way longer than I can. Uh, and he just – he won't go out. He just won't go out until he really has to. And then he'll go under the RV. 
and he'll he'll like sulk about it under the RV and then he'll come back in immediately and then demand to go under the blankets or he'll park himself in front of a heater. And so I was reading about dogs and uh, what I read was that really some of these preferences, like how they feel about the car, how they feel about meeting other dogs and people, how they feel about temperature, really get set within the first 15-ish, if there's a range, but it's on average around the first 15 weeks of the dog's life. Well, he lived for a year down in Austin area. Uh, so, you know, he's, he's definitely, he's so done with winter and it's great now because now there's somebody in, in the family that, that dislikes the cold and the rain more than me. So like, I'm not the complainer anymore. Now it's the dog. It's just the best. We can blame the farts on the dog. We can blame the weather complaining on the dog. I suggest everybody get a pet because it's just the best. Dio.co slash action. Digital ocean of simplicity at scale. And now you can get a $100 U.S. greenbacks credit when you go to Dio.co slash action. That sucker lasts for 60 days, so have some fun. Try out some of DigitalOcean's new features and spin up infrastructure in less than 55 seconds. They have a dashboard for days that makes it simple to do everything. They've got SSDs for all of the system, all of the drives, all of the systems, all the things, even, even things like block storage and object storage. I mean, it's just, it's SSDs for days. It's funny, they got a theme going on here. They also have an API for days. Clearly documented, easy to use, and eight data centers all over the world. Like right now, we're connected to Joe's DigitalOcean droplet in Amsterdam. Why? Because that's how Joe rolls, and I'm not going to argue with it. And you can roll that way too. Go to do.co slash action. Deploy a system completely built. Ubuntu LTS, Docker, and a bunch of cool applications. One click, boom, it's up and going. You look like a boss up on super fast infrastructure, and you've done it in seconds. Or do it like Noah does it and just go all in. No magic scripts. Deploy the base system and build everything on top, write every damn config file by hand, and enjoy the super clear documentation that's well-structured, well-written, and easy to follow. And it's just one of the many great features of DigitalOcean, like their new flexible droplet plans where you can mix and match resources. So for a limited 60-day offer, once you apply it, you can go crazy with a $100 credit. I mean, you can really go all in, check out their fast infrastructure, build something amazing, and put it in production. Do.co slash action. Hey guys, did you see that Cody is switching their name again? Yeah, April Fools. April Fools, no, April Fools. Back to XBMC, they say. Now, the reason why I thought we should talk about this is yesterday we recorded Linux Action News 47. And sure as shit, in that episode, Joe says, I think they ought to consider changing their name because this week we covered that Google is pulling Cody from the autocomplete search suggestions. So now when you say like type in K-O-D, instead of getting anything Cody-related, you get Kodak or Kodiak Bear, nothing about the Cody project. And this is Google's tough stance against piracy, as if the Cody app has built-in piracy. And so Joe says they ought to rename themselves again for a third time uh, and just avoid this issue all around. And they joke in this April Fool's post, but... I don't know, Joe, like, what the fuck is Cody going to do? Like, this is a slippery slope that I think they are halfway down already. This has been, it started with the Cody boxes, now it's their brand. It really feels like uh, the copyright popo are circling in on them, don't you think? Well, yeah, but the more I think about this, um, since yesterday when we talked about it and when I was doing my listen back through to the show, it made me think that if they change their brand, they're going to lose a lot of 
mindshare and and goodwill that they've built up um, because it's a kind of double-edged sword, isn't it? It's a toxic brand in terms of the entertainment industry, but they do make money by selling um, like Raspberry Pi cases. And, um, you know, they do have this brand that is valuable to them. So for them to change it, like that's, it's, they're going to be losing a lot of that value. It's not just that. I run into people on the street, just regular people that have no interest in Linux technology at all. And they'll say, I was going to put a box in my living room to play media and I was hearing about these, this Cody thing. How, how, how do you install Cody on your computer? And they don't even know what Cody is. They have just heard of Cody. So it has established itself as the thing that you go to when you want to play media in your living room. And another thing, I was at a conference for home theater installers and, uh, and they were giving presentations and, and stuff like that. And there's a, um, there's a, uh, we'll just call it a well-known brand that, that makes a commercial version of Cody as an appliance that is very popular in the home theater world. And I don't like their company and I don't like them. And it was funny to watch at their booth, how many people came up to their booth and talked about uh, Cody and said, so what does this do that, that Cody doesn't, what does this do that Cody doesn't? And, really? and have you, do- yeah. And, and is it compatible with Cody? If I buy the server portion, can I, can I play it on, on Cody? And so to, to watch that happen, I, I think Joe's absolutely right. I think they really have developed a, a brand reputation and it would be throwing it away. Isn't it sort of like when the Starship Enterprise is about to blow up and your option is eject the warp core and now you're stranded in space or the entire ship blows up. Isn't that where they're at at this point? Because You've got uh, a pretty large international copyright lobby that's circling the wagons around them. It's not just in the States. It's, it's, it is truly an international effort that is building against Cody. And that effort is what I believe, my own conspiracy bacon here, I believe pressured Google to pull it from the autocomplete search results. If that is the territory we are in now, I don't think there is a long-term brand issue here because there isn't a long-term Cody if this continues. Let's not blow the autocomplete thing out of proportion. I mean, anyone that is interested in installing Cody will just type out the whole name Cody. I mean, it it's stopping absolutely no one. I guess what I'm saying there, because I completely agree with you, is it is the canary in the coal mine. And here's how I view that. And I could be wrong. This is my personal opinion, but I view it as a corporation as large as Google was pressured by this international group to make this change. It doesn't represent a significant loss in traffic for Cody or brand traction, but it does represent that a massive corporation the size of the size of Google felt enough pressure specifically about Cody to make this change. And that I believe is the canary in the coal mine. How do you shut down an open like let's say let's say that it, it really gets some traction and the federal government wants to come out and just outright ban Cody. How do you do that? You can't you do it this way. You fight it in court. You take out the people selling boxes. You knock out its profit capability. And then probably eventually you uh, cut off all its funding sources because you're funding piracy. So you go after like their donation sources, their revenue sources, and you just you just destroy them that way using capitalism, not using the legal system. But to take it back to Star Trek, what happens at that point is uh, emergency source of separation or in the open source terms, a fork. Yeah, and that's where the name would change, I think. I mean, that's gonna ha- it's going to have to be something What would be great. The reason why I wonder if the project should do it themselves at this point, and you guys are both right about the value of their brand, and it looks cool, like they've got good merch too, all that stuff. 
um, and I wish I wasn't saying this, but if the project themselves does this, then they can set up the redirects. They control the narrative. They can set up the branding. They can say, oh, you went to Cody. You meant to go to the new XBMC double power, like whatever they call it. And they can, they can forward the traffic. Like they can control all of that while they still exist. But if they wait till saucer separation, then it, whatever crew survives will be the crew that determines all of that. And how you discover that saucer will be up to people's abilities to search the web while Google may continue to block autocomplete, which could make it even harder to find it in the future. Yeah, think about LibreOffice. Still to this day, I have normal people installing OpenOffice and asking about it. And I see on various places like Facebook or whatever, still after all these years, Obviously, all of us in the Linux world know about LibreOffice, but normal people still think about OpenOffice because it is this household name. It's this huge brand. And so, yeah, as you say, if they don't control the fork and the, the branding change, which is inevitably going to have to come, then they're just going to be left behind. And no one apart from a few open source geeks will know that whatever it ends up being called, KMC or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would way, way rather have Captain Picard on the bridge of the saucer than some low-level ensign or lieutenant who is still surviving that, you know. And I love Cody. I think the uh, NVIDIA Shield combined with Cody is the best TV multimedia experience I've ever had. And that's after years of trying everything. I even around uh, the XP days and when Windows 7 launched, took a couple of stabs at Windows Media Center and bought even those like media extender dedicated boxes. Linksys built these and they were DVD players that also were media extender boxes. And the idea was you'd have one central media center PC with your over-the-air HD antennas, and then you would launch Windows 7, it would start Media Center, and then you'd have these Linksys dumb boxes that also doubled as DVD players, so there was spousal approval there because we wanted a DVD player, and you hook it up to the TV and everything is centralized. And of course I tried it with Myth TV, and I tried it with Plex, and I've tried it with, and I still use Plex and MB, but nothing is as damn fast and is just universal as Cody, and you can run it on a Linux box, a Mac, a Windows box, or an Android TV. I'll let you have the final word on this one, though, uh, Noah, because I know not only do you have a bunch of these in NVIDIA Shields, but you just recently got a travel one, too, so <laughs> you're really all in. It was, it's funny, because you single-handedly are responsible for convincing me to finally give the N NVIDIA TV a go, and really it was m more of a trial by fire, because you just put me in the studio and that was the only way I could watch media was with the NVIDIA shows. <laughs> I didn't have a choice. But then after it, it bit me, it bit me hard and uh, went to the store, bought like eight of them, put them in every TV, the, the, the good ones too, the ones with the hard drive. And if anyone hasn't heard my rant on it, you should always buy the slightly more expensive ones, like $90 more. You can get it for $50 off if you wait for it to go on sale around Christmas, but you should definitely buy that for a number of reasons. But I, I bought the nicer ones, put them all over my house, and then I started to get frustrated because I travel so much. I'm gone three days a week that I bought another one that I keep inside of a little bag with an HDMI cable and a uh, and a spare remote, and it's, it's my travel one, and it's got a bunch of local content right on the device, and so I can plug it into a, a TV when I'm at a hotel, and I, I sent you a picture of it the other day. But it's funny, you talk about, you know, for years trying various different things, and I know you've heard me tell this story before, but I, back in the uh, Linux MCE days, I tried everything I could imagine to try to build a working Linux MC box to the point that I got so frustrated and made this post. And I said, if anybody out there has any hardware for any amount of money that I can purchase 
Let me know, and I'll put it together exactly how you say to put it together, but I just want it to run for more than like three days without crashing. And yeah, yeah. we never could get it to yeah. work. No, you and I both tried Linux MCE because remember the promise was it was this is think about this now. This is what this is what everybody is trying to pull off. And Linux MCE was it what was that a decade ago? Or more. Uh, yeah, man, they had remember the whole idea was you would hit play on Linux MCE and it would use standard um, like home automation protocols to turn down your lighting and you could set it right. in movie mode and it would control everything. Uh, based on your media center. And it worked great for like three days. And then the whole box would crash and you had to restart it. And when it was, and the other thing was Linux MC insisted on being your edge device. So it was my whole, the whole internet and the entire house would go down like once every three days. And I'd have to go down there and restart this stupid box. And it was, I mean, that lasted literally not more than a week before I th threw the thing out and threw it through my driveway. Yeah. I mean, it was trying to be myth TV. It was trying to do lighting for your whole home. It was trying to be a telecom box, literally all these things. It was trying to be a game console. It was trying to do all your climate control. It was trying to do all your security camera management. The idea today doesn't seem as crazy, but back in the day, it was it was just, they were biting off way too much. And uh, before Noah joined the Linux Action Show, I did some Googling and I found, I found that thread way, I can't find it anymore. I don't know how I came across it, but I found the thread where young Noah is like, I will spend any money necessary to fix this. I just want to work. I want to believe. And I'm like, when I saw that, I'm like, yep, that is the same Noah. He is one consistent <laughs> son of a bitch. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about guns. Now, Noah, I know you're big into them, but let me just preface this by saying that I am the complete opposite of you, I think. I am a European socialist who is very happy that we don't have guns in this country. Okay. However, I will make no judgments about your country because it's it's I, I've been there a few times, but it's not my place. Just like it's not your place to tell me about my country, I'm not going to tell you about your country. Sure. So... I don't think there's much point like getting into the debate about it, um, but I just want to know some facts because you mentioned, I think it was on a couple of uh, episodes ago of user error that you've got a concealed carry permit. And uh, that, that led me to ask Chris and he didn't know the answer to this. So what happens when you travel? So well, I suppose, first of all, so you carry a gun at all times when you're in um, Grand Forks then? I carry a gun everywhere I'm legally allowed to carry a gun all the time. Yes, sir. Um, and so where are exceptions to that then? It varies state by state. So in North Dakota, church or church functions, school or school functions, and um, public gatherings. So inside of a public park, stuff like that, and government buildings are obviously off limits. That's quite a lot of places. So like, what about somewhere like a supermarket? So a supermarket is a privately owned business. So a supermarket is fine to carry in. But when I say a public gathering, it would be something like a state-owned park, a city-owned park, and, uh, and, and everyone's coming out and the city has it. Or sometimes they will include, uh, if, if a sporting event is large enough, they'll classify that as a public gathering so that you know, they don't want you to carry firearms in there. And I'm okay with, uh, with, with some of those things, like especially when it comes to like the courthouses and stuff like that, because everybody is going through a metal detector. And so nobody has guns. And so when you can verify that nobody is going to have a firearm uh, or a weapon of any kind, you know, it's, I really don't need a way to defend myself. Right. Well, so with that thing, could, if you had your way, would you like, say I'm picturing you're outside uh, at, a, at a public gathering, somebody's giving a speech, that'd be a no gun event. But in a way that would almost be the 
the kind of event you'd prefer to have a gun at because that's the kind of thing right. somebody's going to come and do some easy picking. So, and it, without getting into too much detail, I'll just leave it at if you are caught carrying a firearm when it is prohibited, it is a, it's a misdemeanor. So to a certain degree, you have to have a conversation with yourself and say, do I think that there's a high likelihood that there's going to be somebody here that is going to try something? And if so, do I value my life or do I value getting a ticket for a misdemeanor? Which one of those things are more important to me? So another question I have is um, defending your property. So say I come and break into your house and start stealing your uh, NVIDIA shields and your TVs. Do you have the right in North Dakota to shoot me dead? No. In fact, in no, in none of the 50 states is that true. Oftentimes, the media will portray that as castle doctrine, and that is in, that is an incorrect uh, applica- application of the castle doctrine law. So what – in all 50 states – you have to have reasonable fear of grave bodily injury or death before you can justify the use of lethal force against another human being. What Castle Doctrine is, it's the opposite of what's called the duty to retreat law. So the duty to retreat law, for example, in California is you have to, and I don't know exactly what it is in California, but it's, it's, it's like you have to retreat three different times. You have to go into one room, shut the door, they break it down. You go into another room, you shut the door, you break it down. You go into a third room, they break the door. Now you can deploy lethal force, but you have to try to get away from them three different times or two different times or whatever before you can do it. Castle Doctrine simply says the presence of somebody breaking into your house is enough to justify the that you're in reasonable fear of grave bodily injury or death. Because if we knew, if for instance, if there was some sort of survey that somebody could take and say, I'm just here to take your NVIDIA shields and your TV, well, fine, That's I'll go wait in the bedroom, you take all my stuff, I'll file an insurance claim, and, and we'll carry on. The problem is there's no guarantee of that, right? They could kill me, my dogs, my kids, my wife. I, I don't know why you're there. I just know that you broke down my front door, a door that has a sign that says the door is here for your protection, not mine. Uh, and so the fact that they're in the house, one can assume, based on Castle Doctrine, that there is, that they are there to to do grave bodily injury or death. Where where that gets taken out of context, though, I think, is people will say, "Well, you see somebody there holding a TV, running for the front door, and I'm just going to shoot him because I can." Well, you're going to wind up in jail for the rest of your life for murder because no jury uh, under the sun, if you sit down and say the guy was had both his hands wrapped around a TV and was running towards the front door, and yet I felt right. gravely in fear for my right. my safety. How? Shot him in the back. Yeah, right. How how was he a threat to you? Now, you specifically, Noah Chalai, in that situation, because you are probably, I would imagine, a pretty good marksman, would you go for the leg? This is one of the things, I'm a certified fireman instructor, and this is one of the questions I get a lot anytime we do a class, is should I shoot him in the leg, or do I need a gun, or could I just get away with pepper spray, or maybe a taser, something like that. You're going to tell me the answer is you can't guarantee where that bullet's going to go, but I want to know, would Noah Chalaya still try to shoot him in the leg? Actually, that's not what I was going to say. We identify the goal. So the goal is to significantly affect an uh, an attacker's ability to present a lethal threat to us or somebody we're trying to protect. So the Mm. goal is never to kill anyone. uh, Taking a human life is probably one of the worst things I could ever Ever imagine doing, right. but losing right. my wife or my kids is worse. And so I'm not trying to kill anyone. I'm just going to stop the threat. But statistically speaking, the most surefired way to stop a threat is multiple shots to the upper center chest. Now, in some circumstances, shooting somebody in the leg would absolutely stop the threat, or tasering somebody could absolutely stop the threat, or pepper spray could absolutely stop the threat. But when it comes to defending the lives, my life, or the lives of my kids, or the lives of my wife, I'm not going to count on food seasoning and sex toys. I am. I want 
the most sure-fired way to stop the threat. And we know that that's multiple shots to the high center chest area. Now, the downside to multiple shots to the high center chest area is it has a very high likelihood of death. And mm-hmm. my answer to that is just attacking me or my family is not necessarily a safe thing to do. Okay, so what about traveling? You travel a lot for work, right? So I do. Uh, what happens there? Are you allowed to cross state lines with your weapons or what? Again, it varies state by state. Uh, there is a there's an app I have on my phone, uh, U.S. Handgun Laws, and basically that I have three concealed carry permits. I have a concealed carry permit for the state of North Dakota, the state of Minnesota, and the state of Utah. And between those three permits, I can carry in 46 of the 50 states. Um, and so what I do is I open up that app and the app I have listed the, the permits that I have that I currently hold, and it will tell me I can carry in this state. I can't carry in this state. Additionally, there is a federal law that requires it like Illinois, for example, is one of the states I can't carry in federal law requires, as long as the firearm is in a locked hard sided container outside of the reach of the driver. So example in the trunk unloaded in a locked hard-sided container on the outside of the reach of the driver. As long as the handgun is stored in that fashion, you can travel through a state as long as you're going from a state that allows you to possess the firearm to a state that allows you to possess the firearm and you don't have any plans to stop in a state that doesn't. So if I get pulled over in Illinois, law law enforcement officer comes up, says, do you have any firearms in the vehicle? I say, yes, I'm a resident in North Dakota. I have a handgun in the, in the trunk. It's in a locked hard inside sided container and I'm going to the state of, you know, I don't know, uh, Georgia and they allow me to have firearms and I have no plans to stay inside of Illinois. He can't arrest me for that, that I'm, I'm allowed to pass through the state. Um, but obviously when I go to states like New York or California, I can't take a firearm because I can't reside in that state with a firearm. You know, there's an interesting parallel there with legal cannabis here in Washington. So Lady Jupes is 40 feet long. And, uh, you know, the way we look at it is when we're going down the road, if we have our alcohol or if there's cannabis or something like that, and we we put it in the back half of Lady Jupes, you know, where we have the kitchen door, you know what I'm talking about, know where the the main bathroom door is. We feel like if we have it back there, that's clearly um, not up in the driver's area. And so that's sort of our dividing line. And that's, you know, that's what, 25 feet back in the the RV, I don't know, maybe more. but the reality is when we go into Arizona, even if we had like uh, grinding powder back there, we would be in trouble. Like there's nowhere I can put that in the RV while, while I'm in some states where I'm okay. But if I'm in Washington or California or Oregon or lots of other places now, it's totally fine. And it's, so there's these – there for some things, and I'm, I'm wondering if it's the same for the gun stuff, there are like these really esoteric like edge cases that you have to be aware of. Like I have to store it in this place. Um, I have to – I can't have this kind in this place. That must be the same for guns too. You must, I mean this must become like – an active part that you have to keep track of with as much as you travel. So there's a couple different things I want to respond to that with. The first is there has been a lot of push to do away with state individual rights and letting the states decide what they want to do for firearm laws and just make like one federal law and say, we'll just handle it all to federal government. And the truth is, as much as that would simplify life of, okay, I can carry a firearm or I can't carry a firearm. I'm actually against that because I, I think it's okay for the people of California to figure out what works best for the people of California and the people of North Dakota to figure out what works best for the people of North Dakota and never the two shall meet. We're so far away. We have such a diverse and different population that it, it just what works in, in a 500, 
you know, apartment complex in Houston doesn't necessarily translate to what works well on a ranch in North Dakota where you don't have another human being for 55 miles in any direction. So I, the, the closest I've ever seen to legislation that I think addresses that is the National Concealed Carry Reciprocity Bill, which would basically treat the concealed carry permit like a driver's license, whereas I'm permitted to carry in another state uh, all 50 states have to recognize a concealed carry permit, but each state can decide for itself what criteria they want to use to issue a concealed carry permit. Much like in certain states, they just have you do a visual test of you read numbers. In other states, they actually have like stop signs and yield signs that you have to identify and a stoplight that you have to show like red, green, and yellow. They The, the tests vary widely. Uh, the driving test, the duration of it varies widely from state to state. And yet all the states let you drive in any of the other states. So we've talked about driving there. What about flying? Presumably, you can't even check uh, a bag with a gun in it. Yeah, so flying is actually uh, quite a bit easier. Um, basically, what you do is they call it declaration of a firearm. So you go in, you walk up to TSA, you say, I have a firearm I'd like to declare. The TSA agent opens the, again, locked hard-sided container and verifies that it's unloaded. Um, they put a, you, you lock it and you take the key. And then it gets checked and put underneath the airplane. When you get to your destination, it comes out on the baggage carousel like any other bag and you carry on. Interesting thing about that, it's easy to get guns into a place like California or New York because they don't check baggage. That's just a bag that comes out like any other bag. The problem is uh, when you go to leave, if you tried, <laughs> if you walk into New York airport, JFK and say, I want to declare a firearm, they'll tell you to wait right there and team of police officers are going to tackle you for possessing a firearm. Wow. That's kind of what I was talking about. Yeah. Well, but what's stupid about that, right? It's, it's, and, and again, we can make a parallel to marijuana. There is no possible way for me to determine uh, if somebody is currently under the influence of marijuana. The only thing I can tell is have they had marijuana in their system in the last 30 days, you know? So it, the, the idea that we, we can't really test to see if somebody's currently under the influence means that trying to arrest somebody for driving quote unquote under the influence is, is idiotic. They could have had marijuana right. 30 days ago. And by the same token, what good is having all of these security measures that prevent you from leaving the state with the firearm when there are no security measures to prevent you from bringing one into the state? <laughs> so how does it feel to be in a state like New York or California with no gun? Do, do you feel naked and, and sort of scared and um, vulnerable? Yeah, I look. I have I have studied um, self defense from the time I was probably five or six years old, starting with uh, martial arts and stuff like that. And so, you know, self defense to me, having lived most of my adult life this way, has become a way of life, not necessarily one particular object. So, I'll give you an example. One of the one of the easiest things you can do to just stay safe is keep your eyes up and around. Just be looking around and just notice things that are around you. Notice that weird guy that is, looks like he's got this glare and he's coming right towards you stuff like, you know, just knowing that ahead of time and paying attention to that. I don't get into a vehicle without looking into the windows to see if there's anyone in the car. When I'm walking out to the parking lot, I'm looking underneath the vehicle to see if there's anyone there. And it's not about being paranoid and, you know, looking around like 007 or anything like that. It's just paying attention to, to the world that you live in and, and what's around you, putting your seatbelt on, uh, stuff like that just goes a long way to, to keeping you safe. And so, yeah, sure. Am I a little, do I feel a little less safe anytime I don't have a firearm and know that I could end a deadly threat against me? Sure. But there are other things I do. I carry a small, on my keychain. I have a small little rod. It's about uh, four, maybe four or five inches long and about a half an inch 
uh, wide, and it's called a Kubaton, and it was developed by a gentleman named Tak Kubota. And Tak Kubota basically went through and tried to uh, develop a series of strikes and pins and defense techniques that executives could use. And he developed them around the one thing that he knew every executive would carry, and that is a cross-type ballpoint pen. And the problem that he ran into was they kept inadvertently killing the people that they were trying to defend against because the cross ballpoint pen is sharp and it would pierce, uh, it pierce the body and, and ultimately kill these people. And so he developed this blunt version of a ballpoint pen and then he called the Kubaton and uh, it's legal in all 50 States. The only place that it's prohibited is carry on on an airline and some schools. But other than that, it's something I can have on me, my person a hundred percent of the time. Uh, and so little things like that, just paying attention and understanding that the, the, the two most effective weapons you can carry with you all the time are your hands and your feet and knowing how to use those properly, I think off puts any sort of government regulation that would limit my ability to defend myself. Okay. So another question that I have for you, the most important one is obviously you've spent many hours practicing in fire, uh, firing ranges, you know, that sort of thing. But have you ever had to use a firearm out in the wild anywhere to defend yourself or others? No. And in fact, one of the things I open every class I teach with is the best example of good training is never having to use it. I don't put myself inside of situations where I would need to defend myself. And I do everything in my power to avoid being in situations where I would ever need to defend myself. And to me, that's the best example of, of training is paying attention to that kind of, those kinds of things, paying attention to, you know, I was in uh, New Orleans not that long ago and uh, there's New Orleans. There are parts of that town that can be kind of rough. And uh, so I just didn't leave my, and I, that's where I was staying. And I just didn't leave my hotel room after 8 PM because I didn't, I had a firearm, but I would, you know, it's a lot of paperwork. But what if you're in line at the bank or something, and then suddenly someone comes in and tries to rob the place? So that starts to get into, again, what your goal is. So somebody comes into the bank, they try and rob the place. If they're not actively attacking me, if I can hunker down and be a good witness and call 911, that's my choice every single time. Again, only in the most gravest circumstances would I ever have to use a firearm. If you know, if the, the guy's robbing the bank, let him take the money. Let him let the let the bank tellers who are trained to deal with an armed robbery situation, let them deal with it. Now, if he starts turning around and shooting everyone and, you know, and I'm next, you know, I'll have to do what I have to do. My question there is, is it your personal belief that most gun owners have that same outlook, that same philosophy? Uh, I'd say it's a mix. I would say the vast majority of people that are interested in self-defense absolutely have that same feeling. However, I have met my share of gun owners that they, they, they just look at it as like this cool toy or like this thing that they can, I, I don't exactly know how to say what I'm saying, but they, they just want to pretend that they're in a movie and those people are very dangerous. They're, they're dangerous, not only to, you know, other gun owners, but they're, they're dangerous to society. They're dangerous in all sorts of different ways. And, the thing that I take comfort in is most of the people that I'm around, most of the gun owners that I know, and most of the gun owners that study self-defense hate those people just as much as you or probably Joe or anyone else does, right? Like they're not really tolerated inside of the gun community. From what you've said, you are a very responsible gun owner, right? But how do you feel about how easy it is for anyone to get a gun in your state and the, the various other states of the U.S.? Do you think that there should be a higher barrier to entry so that you have to prove that you are responsible like you are, 
Or do you think that it should be free to anyone who wants one? So I think that to answer that question, I have to look at what U.S. law is. So the the way that the Second Amendment and uh, the Constitution is written, it's it is a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, and that is the preamble. That is the justification for the right that is to follow, and the right that follows is the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And there is no well, so here is the part where you have to meet these criteria in order to do this. The the only way that right can be removed is through due process. And none of us are born with a card of sanity. So you can't we can't just look around and say, well, you have to prove that you're sane first before you can buy a firearm. That's just not the way the law is written. Now, if we want to change that, we certainly could. We'd need two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate, and three-quarters of the state, or we need a, a, an Article 5 convention. In either one of those two things, we could absolutely amend the Constitution to say, well, now we're going to require you to go to this level of training or pass this certain sort of test or, or something like that. Um, but it, with, without that, everybody, I believe that everybody has the right to purchase and own a firearm. I think that it is their responsibility to then learn how to use that firearm responsibly. Um, but no, I don't, I, I don't think that, that we should have any sort of law that requires it. And as far as how easy it is to get a gun, I think sometimes that's misrepresented inside of the media in order to, if you go to buy a firearm, you have to pass a FBI background check. You can't have any felonies on your record. You have to be a citizen or naturalized or natural born citizen of the United States. And if you can't meet any of those criteria, you won't be, uh, you won't be afforded the right to, to buy a firearm. They'll, they'll bar you from purchasing it. And so this idea that you can order a gun on the internet and it shows up in a UPS box, that is, it's, that's a pure myth. That's it. That, that is not true. It does not happen. It's not legal. If you order a firearm on the internet, it has to be shipped to a federally licensed firearm dealer. And that dealer has to run a certain amount of paperwork, run an FBI background check. They are, they are trained to look for certain things. So for example, one of the things that FFLs are trained for is to spot people that are trying to buy guns for other people. So let's say, Joe, you came to the U S and you're like, Hey Noah, run, run, grab me a gun. And we go into the store together and we're looking at guns or whatever. And you're like, yeah, that one right there. And I'm like, Oh, that one. Okay. And then I go up to the gun and say, I want to buy this one. He's, he's watching. He watched that entire transaction and he knows to look for one person pointing out the gun and, and looking at it and the other person trying to buy it. And they'll deny you a purchase based on what we call straw purchasing laws. So th- th- this this idea that that people are just gonna, that people just have easy access to firearms in the U.S. is 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 not necessarily founded in fact. There is a process to buy a gun. If you can meet that process, yeah, you can get one, and that's as it should be. Isn't the reality that the easy access to guns isn't uh, through the gun show loophole or ordering over the internet? In my personal experience, it's that you have family members that own guns. I mean, I think almost every male adult in my family, with the exception of a couple, has firearms. And when they pass on or when they just get done with them, they just – tend to pass them on to their to their children or to other family members that's really probably the most common way that uh, people get casual access to guns but that's right. not what's fueling these people that are going out and and committing awful kinds of acts so it's it's sort of a gray area because it seems to me that even if we were to stop all sales of guns tomorrow you've got you've got so many out there that are in the hands of family i mean there's there's so many people out there that don't own one gun they own many guns and uh mm-hmm. There's just there would always be a black market of guns forever. I mean, there's just millions and millions and millions of guns, and probably the number right. it would boggle my mind. Yeah, and that's why I think that it's not right for people who live in my country to have an opinion really on on what goes on in yours, because 
for us, we don't really have guns. Only uh, a few, a very small number, put it that way, of bad people and then the police and military have guns. But normal people don't have guns. They're not common here. And so we are starting from that position, whereas you guys are starting from a position of probably hundreds of millions of guns uh, across that country uh, owned by citizens, whether legally or not. And so to start talking about uh, whether there should be control of uh, purchasing new ones or selling existing ones or whatever, um, that has to be framed by the fact that there are hundreds of millions of guns there already. And and also, it's a cultural thing as well. Exactly. It's it's not my place to talk about your culture. It's my place to ask you questions, and you know, I'm very interested in it, but my opinion is completely invalid and worthless. <laughs> but just like yours is about my culture, you know, right. about whether we should have guns. You know, you're, I'm not interested in an American's opinion about whether we should have guns here. In the same way, you shouldn't be interested in a European's about you. Right. No, a- absolutely. I, w- I would add to that. One of the things that comes up anytime there's a, there's a school shooting, a mass shooting, something like that, I-, I always ask the question, the next school shooter, the next mass shooter, he already has the gun that he is going to be using. So what are we doing to stop that guy? And it seems like nobody ever wants to have that conversation. Everybody wants to have the conversation of let's make it harder for people to, to purchase guns to begin with. But the fact that we don't acknowledge, like Chris correctly pointed out, there are a multitude of ways to acquire a gun that don't involve purchasing one legally from a store. You could go take one from a family member. You could just go break into somebody's house and steal one. You could go steal one from a cop. It, there's, a, there's, a, there's a bunch of different avenues to get that gun. So what do we do to stop somebody from committing a violent attack once they already have the gun? That's, and that's the conversation nobody ever wants to have. Isn't the answer to that education and teaching children and teachers for example, that if someone comes in with a gun, you have to all tackle them immediately right. rather than cower in the corner or whatever. I think that's, I think education is a big part of it. I think, and this is a little extreme, but I think they should be taking pictures of all of these dead bodies. And I think those should be shown in every school across America. This is what happens when you go into a school and shoot a bunch of kids with a gun. This is the carnage that you cause because a lot of, I think a lot of people have become desensitized to violence because it is so prevalent all throughout our culture, all throughout our media and stuff like that. For some reason, and Chris and I have talked about this, for some reason, we're very, very discerning about our kids watching mutual sexual, mutual consensual sexual relations between two consenting adults. But we, so we won't let our kids watch that. But if, if somebody is, is blowing up buildings and, and killing people right and left, that we don't seem to have a problem letting our kids watch. And so I, I think education of this is what really happens. It's not just a first person shooter video game. This, this has real impacts, real effects. I think that's a big part of it. The other thing is, I think it makes sense to start talking about actual ways you can stop this stuff. So for example, that school in Florida, they didn't even lock the doors. How about we have a conversation about locking the front doors? I, I can't even get into most of my clients without buzzing in. They t- they look at me on a camera and then they buzz me in and then I come in. And if there's a dude standing out there with two Uzis, well, maybe he's not a great guy we'd like to admit. Maybe we ho- ho- hold him out there for a little bit until the police can meet him and find out why he's standing out there with two Uzis. That might be you know a great first step, but we can't even have that conversation in this country. Doesn't it feel like a prison though? Doesn't it feel like you're sending your kids to prison every day if they're locked in and can't leave and no one can come in or out? 
I suppose to a certain degree, but I would, I guess I would turn that around and say, does it not also feel like a prison at any apartment complex in the U S because all of our apartment complexes, you buzz in or out, or you, I mean, if you live there, you obviously have a key to get in, but anyone that wants to visit the, the place has to buzz the, uh, you know, particular tenant and they come up, you know, some of them have a video screen, some of them just talk. Uh, some of them have to go down to the door and meet you, but it, it, you know, we just, we take security seriously. Uh, and the other thing is, I think that we could all but eliminate mass shootings if we just stopped publicizing it and making a media frenzy out of it. Because here's what I have learned over the past couple of school shootings. If you have a problem with society, if you want your, if your face, Facebook posts and your Twitter posts, if they're not getting noticed and people aren't taking them seriously, go shoot someplace up. And I promise you every major news network for the next nine weeks will run your Facebook posts, your Twitter posts. They'll talk about your ideology. They'll talk about why you were upset, what society did to upset you, you know, what the possible ramifications were, the solutions that you proposed. All of that is going to get talked on 24-7, seven days a week for, for like seven or eight weeks. People sitting around glass tables with network local coffee mugs, they're all going to be talking about your ideas and your principles, and they're going to have your picture up everywhere. I think that is a really sick and disgusting thing that we do. We just, we make it as, as appetizing as possible. You know, even they, I think they called it the, Chris, what was it? They called it the, not St. Patrick's Day Massacre. They called it the, whatever day it fell on, Massacre. Mm, I'm drawing a blank. There's been so many. The sad thing is there's been so many that they, they literally are starting to blur together in my mind. And I even follow the news pretty closely. There was whatever the one in Florida, it fell on a particular day and they, they named it like some, some disgusting name. And it, it's one of those things like now, now we're going to give it like in, in infamy name. So you have a name that you can be known as the X day mass mass. Right. You have the, you have the, uh, the, you have the Batman shooter. We can go all the way back to the Batman shooter. Remember he right. went in the movie theater, yeah. right? You've, of course. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. They, it go, it's branded now. Yeah, it is. That is a true point. I do actually also kind of take your point, like perhaps if we showed a little bit more of the cost and didn't sort of uh, Hollywood out the uh, the gruesomeness of it. But would you want your kids to see that, Chris? Like, No, no, exactly no. No, I wouldn't. No, I would like my kids to know this is you, you need to take, you need to take, if, if you're going to touch a firearm, you need to understand the, the absolute severe damage that it's, that tool is capable of, of causing. Yeah, I do agree with that, but I I don't think it needs to be in the schools. I think that could, that should be more perhaps of, uh, I guess it depends on how you acquire the firearm, but, yeah. uh, you know, like when you take drive, when you hear it, I don't know how it is anymore because I'm an old man now, but when you uh, were in school back in the day and you took training uh, on how to drive from the school, yeah. they did have a movie that they made you watch where you saw the carnage of a car accident. Right. I remember seeing that. I don't remember it having any real significant effect on my driving. Well, that's true. <laughs> that's that, no, definitely true. <laughs> Fair point. Last.ting.com. Are you sick and tired of all of the confusing different options, all the different little gimmicks that try to get you in the service agreements of the standard duopoly carrier services? Me too. I hate it. That's why I switched to Ting years ago, and I've never looked back. I only pay for what I use. It's $6 a month for that line, and then it's your messages, your minutes, and your megabytes. Whatever you use, that's what you pay. It's better than unlimited. It's smarter than unlimited because you're smart. You're clever. You can download your podcasts and your music while you're on Wi-Fi. You can make phone calls over whatever VoIP system you want. There's plenty of them to choose from these days, and none of it costs you a cent on Ting's Minutes. 
And Ting's, Ting's all about it. They got a GSM network and a CDMA network. They got a dashboard to manage all of this stuff to make it really straightforward and easy. And if you ever get stuck, they have radically great customer service, better than anyone else in the industry. Actual humans that know what they're doing, that like to geek out about phones, will help you solve your problem. What a concept. I know. It's just one of the many unique things about Ting. You combine that with great device selection or just buying a SIM card for $9 and popping in any device you want. And with their two network compatibility, CDMA and GSM, there's so many devices, you might even say devices for days. You can bring your own or buy one. Check their BYOD page. Get started by going to last.ting.com. Take $25 off a device, or if you do bring one, well, then you get $25 in service credit. That's probably going to pay more than your first month's going to cost you at Ting, because that's how they roll. Last.ting.com. One dot one dot one dot one. Taking on Google's tradition, Cloudflare on April Fool's has launched their own DNS service that they say will speed up your internet. It's not an April Fool's prank either. 1.1.1.1. The new DNS service by Cloudflare. They say they're working with APNIC, APNIC, to offer this DNS service through 1.1.1.1 and 1.0.0.1. Holy crap. That is some, that is some internet real estate right there. You know, it's funny that a very normal person that I know messaged me on Facebook of all places uh, about this and asked me, is this legit? And I said to them that I am very skeptical of Cloudflare because their goal is to control or at least have all of the internet traffic go through their servers. And so I said to her, I'm very skeptical of that. And she said mm, she was skeptical too, but anything that um, screws her ISP out of more money is fine with her because she calls them crooks. So <laughs> it seems like this is going to be popular with normals. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, it's funny because if you read uh, their marketing, you can go to HTTPS colon slash slash 1.1.1.1 in your browser and they have a website and they say, by default, DNS is usually slow and insecure. Your ISP and anyone else, anyone else listening in on the internet can see every site you visit and every app you use, even if the content is encrypted. That's creepy. Some DNS providers sell data about your internet activity or use use that activity to target you with ads. We think that's gross. If you do too, now there's an alternative. And then there's the IP. Privacy first is guaranteed. We will never sell your data or use it to target ads, period. We will never log your IP address. And we're not just saying that. We've retained KeepEMG to audit our systems annually to ensure that we're not doing that and that we are doing what we say. What do you think of that, Joe? Hmm... They can say that for now, but they're still a US-based company, aren't they? So they are subject to all the same rules and all the same government um, interference, potentially. And what is their game? Uh, why? What is their long-term goal? Uh, their goal is, I'm right, aren't I, that they want the entire traffic of the internet to be routed through their servers. And you have to ask yourself, why? What, what do they want to accomplish through that? What is their ultimate business model? Okay, yeah, they have like the the paid DDoS protection and stuff like that, but surely they can't be making enough from those premium services to 
kind of offset the money that they're spending on um, all the free tier stuff. I mean, it's it's such a standard thing now for people to put Cloudflare in front of their website for all of the DDoS protection and all of the caching and all the rest of it. But I have been very reluctant to do that because just there's, I feel something in my bones that Cloudflare are dodgy and I just, I can't put my finger on exactly what it is, but I just want nothing to do with them. What do you think, Noah? I mean, DNS Perf ranks them the fastest DNS service in the world now. Yeah, I, here's the thing. I, my my inclination is to agree with Joe and say, I don't know. But at the same time, Google's a U.S.-based company, and I trust them almost less than I trust anyone else in the entire world. So and they're kind of a standard for DNS. So would you be willing to give it a try? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if I'd do it at, at my at my home, but, uh, you know, at the office or something like that, and just, just to yeah. kind of see how it works. I mean, here's the reality. What, what information can you really... The DNS isn't designed to be private, right? I mean, DNS records are public by nature anyway. Well, you have all your queries, right? So every, you know, every everything in app queries, everything in your browser queries. Yeah, but at the same time, I don't expect any of that to be private. I mean, and maybe that's just the way I view the internet. I know there are some people that, you know, they're, they try to be private and secure on online. If, for me, anything that I actually care about is disconnect from the internet altogether. So it's just varying levels of exposure. And again, I'm probably the wrong person to ask because most of the stuff I'm doing online, I want more people to see because I'm producing content around it, you know? Yeah, you and that air gap. You're all about the air gap. Well, here's what I think. I would suggest perhaps that Cloudflare is doing this. I mean, perhaps, who really knows? But you got to figure it makes the rest of their functionality, all of the like DDoS mitigation and web acceleration and all of that stuff, perhaps is a little bit easier if they have a little bit more control over the DNS. Things, they can affect change, they can reroute people faster if they just can immediately alter DNS records and don't have to wait for that to populate. So that could be their angle here. It could be, but I still, don't you share that same sort of deep, irrational distrust of them? Yeah, I, so, something doesn't smell right. It could be the Alan Jude in me, but... Uh, it feels it feels like Cloudflare does too much for too cheap. All the things that they offer cost a lot more than what they charge, pretty much across the board. Yeah, and maybe they're just doing the kind of typical Silicon Valley thing of not worrying about profitability. Like Amazon managed it for 20 years, didn't they? And now they're making shitloads of money. But but I just don't think that's their game somehow. I just think that they want control. They want to seize control of the entire internet and then it's up to them what we see, and, and maybe they can monetize it somehow at that point, and maybe they've got this long-term goal. But again, that is proper conspiracy thinking, I think. Yeah, I mean, after all, all of this stuff is going to be an amp anyways. Well, yeah, exactly. Okay, Joe and Noah, it's quiz time. Before we wrap up, do you think that birds fart, yay or nay? Are birds capable of farting? I'm afraid that I read this this morning, so I know... Damn it, Joe. You're too well read. I'm going to say nay. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It is nay. Yeah, The Verge has an article up right now uh, based on a book that comes out on April 3rd. Birds don't fart, neither do sloths, uh, but fish do, especially the bolson pulp fish. Uh, it's a, in fact, if it doesn't fart, it might die. It can blow up if it doesn't fart. Also, algae, known to fart a little bit. Turns out algae farts. No wonder why when you uh, walk up to a beach, it stinks so bad. Uh, those are the other kinds of animals that they looked at, including 80 different animals that they investigated 
to see if they farted just for this book. And once the word got out, it spread on Twitter as a hashtag because that's what 2018 is all about now. Hashtag does it fart. Guinea pigs confirmed do fart. Squids do not fart. Now you know. That's good. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't even know what to say to that. (laughs) (laughs) Years of broadcasting experience right there. <laughs> just, here's the thing, like I I thought I had little to say on the uh, on the whole uh, on the whole cat uh, cat adoption thing in the UK, and then you went to uh, and then you went there. You went to to uh, what was it uh, the the algae farting? The algae farts, dude. Yeah. Okay. Birds don't fart. Sloths don't fart. I couldn't thought of couldn't have thought of anything I could have cared of less, and and you managed to top that algae farts. Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I gotta have something for the outro music. <laughs>